The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. A couple of things. One, I, I want to really um, talk about the the historical origins of this housing crisis and how it relates um, to today. Because one of the things I think is important um, thing to try to figure out is why is housing and the housing industry so central uh, to the American economy? Because when you listen to um, all the reports about the, the health or the state of the economy, it often comes back to what is the housing market um, doing, um, which I think is an important question uh, to look at uh, why that is. And it's especially important um, right now because in the last couple of years since the um, economic crash of 2008, there have literally been uh, trillions of dollars lost in housing value. Um, and it, it continues to have this reverberating um, impact in the um, national economy. And so, um, so yeah, I want to look at some of the reasons uh, for that. Um, and within that is to look at the ways in which, which may not be self-evident to people, uh, but the ways in which race and residential um, segregation actually um, feed into the, the concepts of housing values in the first place and how that also um, has impacted the, you know, shape um, of the housing crisis, um, but also the communities where um, that has been concentrated to look at um, why that has been disproportionately uh, devastating and what that means, um, you know, what that means politically uh, and the, the, the impact that that has ac- economically as well. And then talk about the most recently um, and importantly, I think, is the way in which these things have come together uh, to um, sort of create the nascent beginning um, of uh, different movements for uh, housing rights. Um, and really, uh, many of which have been organized around this idea that housing is a human right and that everyone has the right to uh, some place to live, uh, regardless of uh, its value and profitability um, for other people. Um, so that that's kind of the, the, the outline um, of how I would like to um, approach this. So some on the, the history um, of uh, how housing became um, as central to the U.S. economy as it is. Um, since the 1930s, the federal government has viewed um, home ownership as central to the health of the American economy. Um, in 1933, more than half of all mortgages were in foreclosure, um, and, and it meant that uh, once that happened, that banks were generally uh, reluctant to um, do mortgages, to, to lend um, for homes. Um, in the midst of the de- Depression, millions of people were thrown out of work, and those who had um, ventured into uh, homeownership uh, were losing their homes um, by the millions. Uh, by the mid-1930s, homeownership was expensive um, and prohibitive. Uh, down payments were as high as 50%, um, and the houses uh, and the, the mortgage loans were expected to be repaid within um, 10 or 15 years. And if that wasn't possible, people had to take out second and sometimes uh, third uh, loans in order to cover the original. So this was not something that was um, available uh, to to most people. Um, uh, and so the liberalization <clears throat> of mortgage lending and the expansion of home ownership uh, to the working class um, and really to wide swaths of the, the, the middle class as well, 
uh, were conceived of as critical to the American economy um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, they were seen as ideologically uh, central to creating a stake in the system uh, for millions of ordinary people uh, for whom the, the, the efficacy um, or effectiveness of American capitalism was being called into question because of the, not just the crisis of the depression, but people have to uh, remember, or, you know, if you don't remember, should know that in the 1930s, before um, the creation of uh, New Deal um, social safety net um, programs, things like um, uh, public housing, which was created in 1937, um, the, the idea of unemployment um, insurance, the idea that the government would create jobs to um, bridge the gap um, between uh, of unemployment, that before these programs were created, there was nothing. There was no concept of any sort of social welfare. So if the economy went to hell, you went to hell with it. And, you know, you thrown out of your house, lost your job, you know, and that was just the way it was. And so when this happened to millions of people, um, obviously the, the, you know, questions arise about whether or not this system is the best that you can do, particularly when it's happening, you know, fewer than 20 years after the Russian Revolution, um, when, you know, another alternative was posed for what you could do uh, with an economic system that wasn't actually working for you. Um, so in, in, uh, um, part of the, 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 the strategy then, uh, for, um, uh, dealing with housing issues in particular, which were very, um, explosive for, for renters. There were things called eviction riots where, uh, landlords would, uh, evict people from their houses and then, you know, people would, uh, come back, um, and move back in, have standoffs, um, with police. There's this, you know, there was a, a situation in um, Chicago where a 75-year-old black woman was evicted from um, her apartment on the south side of Chicago, and um, 15,000 people showed up at a demonstration at her apartment, moved her back in. Three cops were killed. You know, this was... And, and the, the, the city and the state actually called a moratorium um, on evictions in, in response to that. So the housing issue was quite, you know, uh, was, a, was a real thing. Um, what made lending possible uh, to expand that to millions more people uh, was the liberal, liberalization of mortgage lending um, and uh, the uh, uh, which at the heart of that was the creation of the amortized uh, loan, which mean that loans no longer had to be um, paid back uh, within 10 or 15 years, but could actually be stretched out um, over a period uh, of, of, of 30 years. Um, and in addition to that, in 1933, the federal government set up the Homeowners Loan Corporation, uh, which was created for the, uh, the sole purpose, really, of helping the people who were in foreclosure, half of the homes were in foreclosure, to help them refinance so that uh, they wouldn't have to leave, uh, they wouldn't have to leave their houses. So, you see, it is possible for the U.S. government to actually do something uh, when people are in foreclosure and losing their houses. Um, in 1934, the Federal Housing Administration was created um, for the sole purpose of expanding by the millions um, uh, home ownership. Uh, and this was done in multiple ways. One and the most important was the FHA would now guarantee the loans for anyone who could not get a conventional, what would be known today as a prime loan. And so this was one of the main reasons the banks stopped lending, right? Depression happens, um, uh, mortgages go into foreclosure, um, the banks lose their money. 
And so the federal government steps in and says, we want you to lend to as many people as possible. And to ensure that you do that, um, we will guarantee uh, any home loan uh, of, you know, um, of uh, that is not uh, conventional, which most of them weren't because it's the depression and people aren't working um, and don't have a lot of money. So the banks agreed uh, with this because it was guaranteed. Um, they would not uh, lose any money by doing so. Uh, so it effectively risk removed the risk uh, uh, to, 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 to lenders. Um, the underwriting criteria, though, uh, in order to qualify for a um, in order to qualify for an FHA uh, mortgage loan insurance guarantee, uh, stipulated that um, it would only apply uh, to new properties built outside of urban areas, um, and that those properties were built in racially homogenous uh, areas. So put together, white suburbs. Um, uh, this policy requirement basically guaranteed the investment and development disparities that would grow then widen over the course of the 20th century between suburban and urban areas. And this is very important to how we understand how subprime lending got concentrated um, in urban areas, in black areas, um, how the, the, the concept of differential um, in, in value of what is valuable and what is not is created in this moment of distinguishing between suburban areas, which we will guarantee um, and ensure um, in urban areas in which we won't. Um, and so uh, that combined again with the amortized uh, uh, mortgage, um, along with low down payments um, and, you know, the government backed loans made home ownership instantly available to tens of millions of Americans um, for the first time. Um, and by the, the early 1940s, in fact, it was cheaper to buy a house than it was to rent an apartment. Um, the Federal Loan uh, uh, Corporation and the, um, uh, the, what is that? It's Fannie Mae. Federal, Rory, help me. Huh? No, what? FNMA. Yeah. I know, I can't. I know it's the Fannie Mae is an acronym. What, what? Federal something. Um, it's a federal institution in the, the government that was basically set up to buy the loans, to buy the, the, the loans that small banks and savings and loans associations were making so that those, so that money wouldn't be tied up in that particular savings and loans where they would have more money to lend to even more people. Um, so when it's just contained to the, um, to the bank, they have to wait for all that money to be paid back which means maybe they can lend to 10 people. With the federal government now buying all those loans, it meant they could lend to 30 or 40 people um, in a given neighborhood, as an example. Um, and so while African-Americans were largely, um, almost e exclusively left out of this entire enterprise, it is still the case by 1960, more than 60% of Americans were homeowners. Um, for millions of Americans, the purchase of a house was their largest investment and became a pillar of what constituted um, the American dream. The notion of unimpeded social mobility um, in, American, uh, um, in American society. And in a country with a weak, if almost non-existent welfare state, one's access to home ownership and the economic opportunities it opened up, um, especially as land values began uh, to accelerate, um, this became crucial <laughs> to creating any quality of life um, in the U.S. So this was home ownership 
uh, was a difference between your ability to, to, to retire comfortably, comfortably uh, to send your kids to school. Um, any number of things uh, were tied up in this economic investment. Um, and so in addition to that, the entire home building industry increasingly became uh, uh, central to the health of the American economy. The demand for homes fueled all of the industries connected uh, uh, to home building, from the demands of labor, um, <clears throat> the, the demands for labor, to building materials, uh, uh, to appliances that had to go into the houses, uh, to uh, supplies for the maintenance of houses, to cars that could transport people from suburban areas back into the cities uh, where many of these people um, were working. Um, the equity developed in these homes created the kind of disposable income that helped to fuel the consumerism and consumption um, of American society in the post-war uh, in the post-war period. Now, the exercise of redlining, which was basically uh, the exclusion of African Americans in the, the areas that they lived in um, from both mortgage insurance from the FHA, um, but also from lending, um, <coughs> from lending, did not mean that the areas in which they lived um, uh, were just sort of written off. In fact, the segregation um, of African American uh, communities became incre um, incredibly lucrative uh, for speculators and banks that profited off uh, the segregated conditions. It basically meant because there were literal, literal color lines drawn um, around American cities that restricted where African Americans could live. And, you know, in places like Chicago, these were not just imaginary borders. When black people moved into white areas, their homes were bombed, uh, they were physically attacked. Um, uh, uh, and, and, you know, th there was... Um, uh, uh, it was not possible just to, you know, defy the law and or defy the, the, the practice of segregation. Um, there were brutal consequences to doing so. And because what it set up then was a situation where African-Americans were trapped um, in uh, segregated areas. And that meant that as uh, the through the course of the, the migration and millions of black people are continuing to pour into, you know, urban centers across the north, Overcrowding becomes extremely, you know, an extreme uh, uh, problem. And with overcrowding, conditions begin to deteriorate, but people are paying more and more and more for rent because they have no choice. You can't just say, well, you know, the this apartment is falling apart. They're rats, they're roaches, you know, landlord, come fix this. The landlord's attitude is, if you don't like it, get out, because there are a thousand other people who are dying to live in this space and who are willing to pay two or three times what you are. Um, and so that was part of the dynamic uh, um, uh, that was created that meant that despite the dilapidated and deteriorating conditions that existed in uh, um, these segregated areas, they were quite lucrative. Um, there's lots of uh, uh, reports and studies done on what was popularly known in African-American communities as a color tax or the race tax um, in the 1950s and 60s that talked about um, the, the differential cost in what it meant to be black, that black people could pay, um, uh, 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 the Urban League found in 1960 that black people were paying 10% more for rents um, in, you know, the worst housing in the city um, than white people in suburban uh, uh, in suburban areas. So just because there was uh, segregation did not mean that there was not value um, and wealth um, in these uh, properties. It was just not uh, for 
the people who lived there. It was for the people um, who were uh, um, the landlords and the banks who were profiting um, from that. Um, also, as a result of redlining, a two-tiered system of home financing was established and codified um, in federal policy. So just because blacks were excluded from um, the conventional uh, mechanisms of mortgage lending, um, bank loans, did not mean that blacks did not um, borrow money or did not mean that blacks uh, did not um, enter into the venture of home ownership. They did, um, but unfortunately, often at predatory, uh, uh, at predatory rates. Um, determined by the Homeowners Loan Corporation policy, redline neighborhoods, in their view, evidenced as to why they would not uh, um, uh, back the uh, mortgage insurance. This is a federal government saying why they won't back mortgage insurance um, in black and urban areas. Uh, they said, quote, <clears throat> um, redline neighborhoods, in their view, evidence, quote, detrimental influences um, in a pronounced degree with an undesirable population, black people. This is the federal government. Um, and as such, some mortgage lenders may refuse to make loans in these neighborhoods and others will lend on a conservative basis. So this is the, the government. And I'm emphasizing that because people often think about residential segregation in terms of the attitude of individual white homeowners. You know, do I want to live next to a black person or don't I? And what I'm saying is that that, does not even begin to 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 scratch the surface of really uh, what leads to uh, um, the 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 racial configuration um, of American cities that we actually have to look at uh, the policymakers and understand within that who are the policymakers when the FHA was set up in the first place the Roosevelt administration uh, called from the University of Chicago uh, uh, professors who had come up with uh, theories about how black people were detrimental to property value. Uh, the most pronounced one was a man named Homer Hoyt, who before he came to the University of Chicago sociology department uh, was a West Side, a Chicago West Side real estate developer. So these are, you know, not just random people with random ideas, but these are people from the real estate industry who are then brought into government to uh, construct social policy based on their experience as racist real estate uh, uh, developers. And so this is written in uh, um, into law. The um, uh, uh, FHA goes on to say, um, we do not mean to imply that good mortgages do not exist or cannot be made in the third or fourth grade areas, um, but we think that they should may be made and served on a different basis than in the first and second grade um, areas. So this really are the historical roots to subprime lending. You know, why are some areas, even regardless of your income, there was a study done in Chicago that a black couple making six figures was more likely to be steered in the direction uh, of a subprime loan than a white couple making $35,000. So even regardless of the area that you're living in, federal underwriting guidelines are that you should be cautious and think about lending on a different basis um, in those uh, uh, neighborhoods. Um, and thus a two-tiered lending industry uh, was born. Um, banks served well-to-do white areas. Blacks had to get financing from speculators um, and often at harsh terms. Um, and uh, again, the result was that African-Americans often paid uh, more for inferior housing um, in ghettos uh, than, than whites in good, stable neighborhoods paid for their housing. In Chicago and other cities, 
um, uh, like Baltimore in particular, uh, um, where blacks could not secure mortgages. A black person in the city of Chicago could not get a mortgage uh, um, from a uh, from a bank um, until probably. Um, 1969, 1970, after a group of black homeowners uh, formed an organization and sued uh, in federal court. Um, before that, uh, black people could not get a, a mortgage um, in the city of uh, Chicago. So if you were African-American and wanted to buy a house, you had to buy it on installment plan. Um, and, and, and basically, you know, these were uh, under predatory terms, uh, um, real estate speculators would buy houses cheaply from whites, uh, who they often terrorized into selling their property, uh, um, beforehand, um, and, uh, would flip those houses, uh, to blacks for two or three, sometimes four times what their actual, uh, value were. Um, and under the contract system, it meant that while you assumed all of the financial responsibilities of the home ownership, the upkeep, the property taxes, uh, so on and so forth, you did not actually have possession of the title until the final contract payment uh, was made. And if you missed a single contract payment, say within that 20 year span, you were treated like a tenant and evicted, having uh, uh, accumulated no equity uh, or anything um, in the in the house uh, in the house itself. And so. Um, this, you know, also resulted in um, both the deterioration of the communities themselves, because people were paying so much more uh, for their housing that they didn't have uh, money for upkeep. They didn't have money for maintenance um, or anything uh, uh, like that, often had to take on um, added people, added tenants into the houses to be able to cover these uh, uh, costs. But interestingly, a study done in Chicago in 1961 found that even despite all of that, the rate of foreclosure was less with black people on contract than it was for white people with conventional uh, prime loans. So the argument that we can't loan to blacks because they're more likely to go into default because they have unstable family structures, which was a reason that the banks used as a reason why they wouldn't lend, um, even by their own logic, didn't hold, uh, uh, didn't hold um, uh, water. Now, <clears throat> by 1967, the federal government was forced to end its policy of redlining. It was forced to end its policy of saying we will not insure mortgages in inner cities. Uh, because of the urban uprisings. Um, there was uh, a widespread um, uh, idea that was popular in both parties that um, part of the reason why people are rioting um, is not just the housing conditions, although that was listed as one of the main reason in government studies as to you know what is the, what is the reason behind um, the rioting. But part of the um, uh, explanation that they came up with was people don't own their own homes. You know, Richard Nixon said in 1969, if we give these people houses, they won't burn the neighborhoods down. Um, and so the federal government undertook a policy of promoting home ownership in the late 1960s. And the first component to that was actually ending this policy uh, uh, of, of, of redlining, um, at least by the federal government, um, not by uh, uh you know, private banks, uh, but the government would now insure, uh, insure mortgages. And so in the HUD Act of 1968, the government included a number of new proposals, um, including the invention of mortgage-backed securities uh, to raise money uh, to uh, uh, fund um, the expansion of home ownership in poor black uh, um, neighborhoods and to lure uh, private capital um, into, um, into the, the, um, um, 
the 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 home ownership um uh, to to lure them into uh working together in partnership with the public with the with the federal government to create and expand uh um home ownership among poor african um <clears throat> uh poor african americans um and the basically the the combined effort of both led to um uh you know a people started selling houses in the inner city like wildfire because now it went from redlining to what it called greenlining, uh, where basically speculators now had um, an interest in selling houses in the African-American community uh, because the banks, uh, because the federal government would now guarantee the loan so that if people defaulted, it didn't matter, they would still get paid. And so with this one program in particular, the government... Um, the program was you put $200 down um, and pay 1% interest um, on your house, uh, then, you know, you can get a house. And at that time, interest rates were 8%. So the government was picking up 7% interest. Your mortgage payment was tied to 20% uh, of your overall salary. So no matter what you were making, you were just paying 20%. So speculators go into urban communities, particular uh, in particular places like Detroit, and start buying up um, uh, condemned properties, uh, properties that they're buying for a dollar, paint them, and then start recruiting people uh, from housing projects. You want a house? Here, we'll sell you a house. You don't have $200 to put down on the house? That's okay. We'll put that $200 down, $200 down for you. And so people move into these houses, and within months, the houses are falling apart around them, you know, and the people would walk away. They'd leave the houses because it's not worth it. They don't have any money uh, for the repairs. The house is more of a burden than it is anything else. And the banks don't care. Why? Because the federal government is now guaranteeing it. And, and, and they're getting their uh, mortgage back in full. And in fact, foreclosures and defaults are becoming incentivized. That maybe it's better if everybody just starts defaulting because we're getting our money back immediately. So from 1971 to 1977, there are more than 344,000 foreclosures um, in about 12 African-American communities. And one of the stipulations that HUD, uh, uh, that the banks imposed on HUD in order to enter into these agreements was that if the houses go into default, why don't you take them back? We don't want these houses back. So, Usually when a bank has to take a house back, there's some investment in maybe trying to work it out or figure it out so they don't have to deal with selling it. But now HUD has to take the houses back, not the banks. And so HUD, by the end of the 1970s uh, or by 1978, finds itself with an ever-expanding inventory um, of, of these dilapidated, broken houses who've been overvalued or not worth, you know, uh, what the appraisers said they were worth because the appraisers were getting paid as well. There's hundreds of people indicted uh, in federal court um, as a result of uh, these uh, fraudulent scandals. Um, and so HUD, which has this ballooning inventory, finally decides we're going to undertake a policy of demolition. So we're just going to start knocking shit down. So in Detroit from 1971 to 1978, the federal government knocked down 25,000 houses um, uh, under uh, uh, as a result of this program. So, you know, often people look back at the riots in 1967 as the starting point for what went wrong in Detroit. 
In the riots in 1967, which were the worst, worst riots in the history of this country at that time, uh, 2,500 um, units of housing were destroyed as a result of the 1967 riot. But from 1971 to 1978, the federal government knocked down 25,000 houses. Um, and so that has to be factored in, not just to how we understand what happened to the cities, but how do we understand what happened to the, the communities where this was concentrated? What happens to the value of the, the, the remaining houses when, you know, you're on a block with two or three, uh, uh, empty lots, houses that have been, uh, uh, destroyed? What happens to, um, the, the tax collection? Then what happens to the public schools? So on and so forth. And so this is part of the understanding of, of what happened, uh, of, of why um, the, the communities that were targeted for subprime loans because of, um, you know, the, the stability of those communities, because of income levels, because of job accessibility, all the factors for the banks that go into determining who gets a prime loan and who gets a subprime loan are not the result of individual behavior, which is how this entire, you know, uh, um, what happened to, you know, uh, American cities is, is written is that it's a, you know, a problem of personal responsibility. It's cultural poverty, so on and so forth. You know, this is the reason I go through this history is to understand how this was written into law from the very beginning um, and whether it was uh, public policy or private practice that the two worked together uh, to create the conditions um, that led to and resulted in the crisis that we face today. And moreover, the, the impact um, of uh, the, the failure of these programs was not the need for more regulation, because that ultimately was the problem, is the federal government creating programs with no oversight. The problem become, became translated into, well, this is the problem uh, uh, with government in, in involvement at all. De let's deregulate everything. And that's what happened throughout the 80s into the 90s, where any regulation over uh, the banks and the real estate industry and any oversight of that were increasingly uh, uh, chipped away until they were essentially... Um, until they were essentially non, uh, until they were essentially non-existent. And that was combined with another economic crisis in the 1990s, uh, in which, uh, yeah, at the point where 70% of black, of, of, of homeowners in this country, or 70% of homeowners were white, there's this whole untapped market of black people who want to buy houses <clears throat> that we have to figure out um, how to manipulate and take advantage of. And so the, the Clinton administration leading the charge, we have to, um, un, uh, unleash the, 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 the forces of the private housing market on black America. So all these people who have been excluded, um, before, you know, um, we need to pull them in, uh, to home ownership and we will do that, um, with, you know, these insane, uh, uh, subprime, uh, uh, loans. And so <clears throat> I won't get into, um, you know, the subprime lending crisis. Um, hopefully people um, are familiar with that two or three years into the, the housing crisis. But if you look at the, you know, the, the peak of that for African-Americans in particular uh, was in 2007, um, 2008 at the very beginning because people had gotten these loans um, very early on. Um, but the reverberations of the housing crisis obviously persist um, today. Housing prices have fallen 33% uh, um, since the beginning of the crisis, which is worse than the 31% 
um, fall in value during the depression um, itself. Since 2008, $7 trillion has been lost in housing equity and prices, home prices are now at the pricing level they were in 2002 with really what experts say is no end in sight. I mean, you know, if you get on some of these, I get on some of these real estate uh, listservs because we look for abandoned properties and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but, you know, they come up every month with some happy talk about the recovery. It, it's in sight. It's coming, you know, buy a house, buy a house now. Um, and really, you know, anyone who has looked at anything with the uh, the housing market knows that who knows where the uh, where the end um, in sight is there's still an expectation of a 5% further drop um, in prices before the end uh, of this year. In terms of like who is in foreclosure or threat of foreclosure, there are over 4 million properties that are 30 days past due um, of their uh, mortgage payment, almost 2 million uh, uh, properties that are 90 days delinquent but not yet in foreclosure, uh, over 2 million uh, uh, properties that are in foreclosure uh, 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 foreclosure pre-sale inventory and over 6 million um, properties that are 30 days delinquent um, or in foreclosure. This is a housing disaster. In addition to that, one quarter of homeowners have a mortgage that is worth more than their home. Um, people talk about being underwater um, and another 25% are nearing that point. And there's really no reason to, uh, to believe that this situation will get any better given um, the, the, the rise in unemployment. Or the, you know, the, the stabilization of unemployment, um, at 9%, and of course at 16%, uh, for African, um, Americans. Um, and every step of the way, uh, when the federal government, the Obama administration in particular, could have intervened to mitigate the worst excesses of this disaster, they have responded, uh, 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 with either, you know, ineptness, you know, or complete uh, 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 disinterest. Um, the Home Affordable Modification Program, uh, which was uh, Obama's uh, housing program, uh, is largely a failure. Um, this was the program that was supposed to help homeowners renegotiate the terms of their inflated mortgages um, and get loan modifications to ensure that they could stay in their homes. Instead, when the instead of that happening, the Obama administration left it up to the banks to figure it all out. So the, the, the same institutions that created this mess, they left them uh, uh, with the authority to figure out, well, who qualifies uh, for a loan modification uh, versus, uh, 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 you know, who doesn't. But what the reality is, is that the banks have zero um, incentive to modify loans if they believe that they can actually get the homeowner to pay what they believe the worth of the house, uh, what the bank believes the worth of the house is, or if they feel like they can sell the house for more than the homeowner can uh, afford to pay. So there, there's no incentive to try to work it out. Uh, aside from the fact that the banks really hold uh, to this idea that people should pay what they agree to pay in the first place. They have, there's a situation um, in Inglewood, uh, uh, which is a poor uh, area of Chicago, where it appears that the banks have, even while driving people out of their houses, have decided that the houses that these people have been driven uh, from are worth so little that they don't want them. They don't want to try to sell them, so they're just walking away. So it's littering, littering this area of Chicago uh, with um, abandoned, 
you know, dilapidated uh, properties because banks, when they have um, a, a house in foreclosure, are supposed to keep some sort of maintenance uh, up with the property so that they can resell it or so that it doesn't blight the rest of the block. In Inglewood, they are walking away from these houses by the hundreds. And obviously, it is destroying uh, uh, what what is left um, uh, what is left there. So with the, the Obama program, it means that of the $600 million that was allocated uh, for this program, only 3% of this money has actually been used. So it was $600 million two years ago, or 2008, three years ago, that this was allocated. 3% of that money has been used uh, uh, to actually modify um, uh, um, to modify people's loans. Um, and meanwhile, you know, while the banks are supposed to be coming up with loan modification uh, uh, plans for people, they have been uh, foreclosing on people at a fevered, you know, in a, in a fevered frenzy, uh, the extent of which was revealed with the robo-signing scandals uh, that showed that banks were widely and indiscriminately violating the rights of homeowners uh, um, in an effort to, to effectively steal their homes. Like, foreclosure is a legal process. Right. In which, you know, you have to sign legal notarized documents that attest to the truth of what is in those documents. And the banks basically hired people to just sign their name blindly, not reading anything. Um, and in some cases, like here in Chicago, the uh, the banks did get notarized signatures and then unattached those papers from the deed rearranged the paperwork, you know, to change the timing for things and then reattached the deed, you know, the, the sworn statements back to uh, uh, the deed. So widespread uh, uh, corruption that is, yeah, that that is not disputed by anyone. The banks put themselves under a moratorium last fall because they weren't disputing the fact that this was their, um, that this was their uh, uh, practice. Um, the HUD, the, you know, the Housing and Urban Development Department, a, a, a wing of the federal government, uh, launched an investigation into Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, Ally Financial. The audits found um, uh, that the lenders, that these banks, were violating the quote, um, what's called the False Claims Act, uh, which is a Civil War era law used to stop firms from swindling the government. Um, HUD found that the these five banks, you know, the five largest banks in the U.S., um, were rife with violations, you know, wantonly uh, violate, violating this law. And so what they've done is they've turned this evidence over to the Justice Department. And now the Justice Department has been sitting on this since December, debating whether or not to pursue charges, right? So it's, again, Bank of America just had uh, agreed to a settlement um, with uh, its investors for $14 billion for the money that they lost um, as a result of the housing scandal. And meanwhile, for homeowners, it's nothing. You know, you can't even get the federal government to take what one wing of it has produced as evidence of fraudulent activity um, on behalf of the banks to even prosecute uh, to even prosecute that. Because as David Axelrod, um, Obama's uh, lead, um, what is he, his lead advisor, says, well, we can't have a federal moratorium because we know there are still some legitimate foreclosures that are happening. That's the Obama administration's uh, um, uh, uh, response. And the administration has largely stood on the sidelines because of the reality of what it would mean to legally conclude that the banks um, have defrauded 
millions of homeowners. What would that mean? Um, uh, uh, and, and millions of more who are uh, in their homes now would basically be that the foreclosures would be invalidated, uh, um, costing the banks tens of billions of dollars and creating an economic limbo for uh, the billions of dollars that are in secured to uh, securitized uh, mortgage money. Um, and that is really why, because the problem is so widespread and diffuse throughout the banking industry, that in and of itself is why the administration is utterly passive and sits by and places the entire burden um the entire burden on on homeowners uh, um, themselves. Um, so, in the reaction to this, I mean, the 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 other side of the the foreclosure fraud um, that has happened is that it really has created um, the conditions for um, you know a fight back to emerge among. Um, not just homeowners, but uh, tenants, because in the city of Chicago, for example, the people who are most affected by uh, the foreclosure crisis are tenants because, um, you know, they live in the, you know, the buildings that have been many of which on the, the south and west side of Chicago uh, were bought um, during the uh, the the 2006 2007 during the peak of the uh, the housing market, people bought these properties with the intent of renting out um, apartments, and so they have been uh, tenants uh, are are actually the most affected um, in in Chicago, and so it has created uh, the basis here. And people should talk about their experiences else, elsewhere of uh, being able to to build um, um, uh, uh, housing. Uh, rights actions uh, between both tenants, renters, um, and, and homeowners, all of whom are being hosed by um, by what is happening. Um, and, you know, this is also happening within the context of uh, vicious attacks on public housing, um, you know, across the country, where uh, public housing has been massively uh, defunded. Um, I think the, the, the budget for this year, the proposal was to cut, you know, a billion dollars from HUD's budget, you know, in the middle of a housing crisis. And Ch Chicago has lost 15,000 units of public housing um, in the last decade. The, the latest census has showed that 180,000 African-Americans have left the city of Chicago. Not gone to the suburbs, not, you know, in outlying, have left the area. And that is directly related to both uh, the destruction of public housing in Chicago, which was aimed at moving black people out. And it's, it's also related to the housing crisis. In the neighborhood of Inglewood that I talked about earlier, 20,000 African-Americans have left um, uh, have left Inglewood. There are hundreds of foreclosures that have already happened, hundreds more uh, that are in waiting. Forecl or, or Inglewood is like uh, uh, Detroit writ small. Prairie grass taking over, nature overtaking, you know, certain blocks, blocks with one, you know, house remaining on that. And so not only does that just utterly destroy uh, the, 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 the community that is, is left there, but again, like I started with, what does that do to tax, you know, taxes, the tax base? What happens to the schools in that community? What happens to the other um, institutions or Chicago as a whole that that is lost, you know, this massive amount um, of, of money that is necessary for the functioning um, <clears throat> of the 
that is uh, that is functioning uh, uh, of the city. And so, again, the, the desperation of the situation has given rise to uh, uh, groups like the Chicago Anti-Eviction Campaign, uh, the Take Back the Land movement, uh, which, um, you know, there are people from those groups here, uh, the uh, City Life uh, Organization um, in Boston, all of which have, um, you know, decided not to wait uh, for the banks or the Obama administration or someone uh, to intervene, but have really taken it upon uh, themselves. And I will wrap up on, you know, what I think is, um, you know, an important direction in terms of those struggles. In Chicago two weeks ago, uh, our organization, the, Sh the Chicago Anti-Eviction Campaign, uh, was involved in this effort of moving um, a single African-American a woman with three kids who was living in her car because she was in public housing uh, that was shut down, um, had moved into an apartment. That apartment uh, was then the, the landlord of that apartment went into foreclosure. So she lost that apartment as a result, was living in her car. And so we were able to get um, uh, the address of a property uh, that we knew um, from court records uh, whose foreclosure was being questioned, uh, we were able to get the address uh, of, of that house. Um, some people volunteered their labor uh, to um, rehabilitate uh, this foreclosed property. And so two weeks ago, we were able uh, to move her into that um, uh, uh, house. And, you know, it's something the neighbors appreciate because the neighbors don't want empty boarded up houses um, on their block. We know that the police don't have the right to evict um, and that once someone establishes residency somewhere, uh, that there is a legal process that must unfold in order to evict. And we think that this is possible everywhere because there is something inherently irrational about the system of capitalism that means rates of homelessness have to rise at the same time that rates of housing go empty. You know, so you have people literally living on the streets while you have condos that are empty. You have single family houses uh, 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 that are empty. And for us in our group, and I know other groups around the country, we are putting two and two together. Homeless people in empty properties and daring them to do something about it. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.